very pleased to hear that the speakers for the next five Sundays have been given instructions that the sermon should be complete within 10 minutes, uh, which is, a, as you know, a big ask for me where my opening anecdote can often take five or six minutes to get to the point. So we'll kick straight in um, uh, with today's. Uh, you wouldn't. I don't know if plenty of people here bought flat pat furniture from Ikea with the daft names. You wouldn't lay all the bits out in the living room floor and then start to try to put it together without having the instructions in your hand. You wouldn't, uh, like these young people on the screen, set off into the hills for a hike uh, without a map. I, I thought, uh, the younger ones may not know, but when I was young, there was a, a group called the Famous Five, wasn't there? There was Julian, Anne, George, uh, Dick, and the dog was called... Timmy, you do, you do know it. Yes. So this could be the famous five without Timmy setting off for a walk. But how would they get home for their ginger beer and sandwiches without the map? And in a similar way, the Bible declares repeatedly throughout that this is God's instructions for a happy and full life the way he wants it to be. In the first game, uh, Angie and I put our heads together and we think the point of it was uh, that whether you won or lost depended on chance or on cheating or what Angie wanted to call out at the front. But God's plan is not like that. He is in control. In every book of scripture, he declares that he is in charge, that he loves us and that he has plans to restore from our failings, the way he wants us to be and the way he wants society and his creation to be. And here's the most amazing bit that we only tend to realise when we come to faith in Jesus, that those plans that God has have not only been unfolding for thousands of years, but also they involve me personally and you personally and everyone out there who doesn't yet know him has a place in those plans. Now today's reading, uh, with all the long names, they were very keen to make sure that you actually had the right Shaphan and the right Hulkal, um, but all, in today's reading it's set uh, in Jerusalem in 622 BC, in the 18th year of the reign of King Josiah. And most of Israel has been wiped off the map and only little Judah is left, um, squeezed between powerful empires. It survives for one reason and one reason only, that it has been protected by God for centuries. But God despairs of the behaviours uh, of its leadership, of its kings and of the people. Every manner of wickedness stalks the land. And although in Chronicles the detail is minimal, in the same account in 2 Kings 22, the depravity of the kingdom is made clear. Not just lack of concern for the poor and the old and the sick and the stranger, but every manner of wickedness and cruelty is possible. Setting up of altars to other gods, putting idols everywhere, depravity in the temple itself, and even human sacrifice of the children in fires to foreign gods. And God is disappointed and revolted by what his people have been doing. God's chosen people are putting their faith in anything in chance, in the flip of a coin, in false gods, they're putting their faith in anything except in the promises that God 
made to them uh, through Moses. The kings of Judah were mostly a poor bunch. About three quarters of them have just one phrase to describe them. Uh, They encouraged these diabolical practices and led the people astray into massive sin. So Josiah's grandfather was called Manasseh, and he ruled for 55 years. But the Bible tells us, if you're following along in chapter 33 and verse 2, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And Josiah's dad, King Ammon, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And even the kings who came after him, Josiah's son, Jehoiakim, was king after him when he died, He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And finally, his other younger son, Zedekiah, the very last king of Judah ever before it was wiped off the map, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But Josiah, Josiah is different. It says in earlier in this chapter that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, not turning aside to the right or to the left. Wouldn't that be a great thing if people were able to say that about us, that we did what was right in the eyes of the Lord without being diverted into other things? You see, Josiah appreciated that although he was king, he was really only to be, going to be any good if he was first a servant himself and obedient to God. God was going to be in charge in his life and in that of Judah. Who's in charge in each of our own lives? Who sets our agenda? Who are we serving? And so uh, the chapter goes on to say at the age of 16, as he grew up, as he began to come into his power as king, he began to seek the God of his father, David. At 20, he began the long and difficult task of cleaning up the kingdom of Judah in every corner from the idols and evil practices. And now, finally, as he's beginning to get the kingdom under control, at the age of 26, he decides to restore God's house, the temple. The Jewish Talmud, the Jewish writings say that after 60 years of idolatry and false worship, that they'd not only lost the sacred writings, that there were cobwebs on the altar itself. Now, there's a word, a long word, serendipity, that describes bit of good luck you didn't expect. Have you ever found something you didn't expect to find down the back of a radiator in the U-bend of the sink when you dismantle it? Something you thought was lost forever. Something you thought you hadn't even thought about it had been lost so long and then you find it. Now this is a true story and it must be true because I got it off the Daily Mail website. This is Mr. Norman Hoare, 65, from Newquay in Cornwall, who bought a sofa secondhand, or as us in Lancashire would say, a settee. And um, in this settee, uh, while rummaging in it, he found £85. And as you can see, he's overjoyed. Mr. Norman Hoare of Newquay, Plymouth, uh, uh, in Cornwall, uh, age 65, said, I were overjoyed. And he is because he's found 85 pounds. But 85 pounds is as nothing compared to what the builders and the decorators found in the temple. God's law lost for 50 or 60 years under a corner in dust, uh, covered in cobwebs, his instruction manual to Israel. And the 
uh, secretary of the king, Shaphan, brought this scroll to the king and began to read from it. And Josiah, Josiah, because he's a man seeking the God of his father David his whole life, because he's a man seeking to do what's right by God, was, of course, when he finds the scroll of the law, overjoyed. He was ecstatic. He wasn't. It says he was distraught. He was distraught because he realized the depth of his failure and Judah's failure. Like if you're familiar with Revelations 2, when uh, John is writing to the church in Ephesus, he says, you've forgotten your first love. You've forgotten, you haven't realized how far you have fallen. And in that realization, he tore at his clothes. Um, I'm not going to tear at my clothes. Uh, I just bought this T-shirt yesterday to, uh, to be smart to preach in. Um, he tore it. It cost me 15.99 in marks. So I'm certainly not going to tear it. Um, he tore at his clothes. He wept. He broke down because he was aware of the gap between where he was and what God wanted and where his people were. But then, being king, he acted. And he sent his closest counsellors to see a lady prophet called Huldah, uh, and all those long names, there's no doubt about which particular Huldah he means clearly, to hear what God had to say. And she told him, well, of course, of course, as all the prophets said, judgment on Judah is coming, it is well deserved, and your, your country has turned away. But because you have been humble, King Josiah, because you have torn your clothes and wept, because you have turned back to me, because you have sought me, it will not happen in your lifetime. And you can read at home how he then led the people. He stood on the portico of the temple and read God's word for the first time in 60 years. And the people all committed themselves to the covenant that their ancestors had made with God. And their kingdom was blessed and at peace for the rest of the reign of King Josiah. And then they celebrated the first Passover in decades, remembering again God's blessings and salvation and deliverance from Egypt. And it says in Chronicles that there had never been a Passover uh, celebrated by any of the kings of Judah, even David and Solomon, right back to the time of Samuel, because they had realized God's peace and salvation. And those people who have come to faith recently, those who are baptized, will know the lightness of spirit and the joy that that realization brings you when you realize what it is to live in God's purposes. So what does all this mean for us? Well, firstly, there are three things that I draw from it. The first is, like Josiah, we need to seek the Lord. Um, we need to make space to find God in his word. Are our Bibles, like Josiah's, left in a corner, covered in dust, covered in cobwebs? And I've just realized recently how quickly spiritual cobwebs grow on a Bible. It doesn't take 50 years. So get it out and be challenged by it. This church is full of people whose lives display the change that God's word read and prayed over daily brings into their lives. The picture I got from uh, the Wycliffe Bible Translators website, and it's from the Kaleti people in South Sudan, and the, which is where our missionary partner Lynn is. And the reason it's on is this is the thousandth language to be translated by Wycliffe uh, uh, from God's word in English and Hebrew and Greek into uh, the local language. And these people, this lady, is reading 
at God's word and hearing straight from God for the first time in her life in her own language. Is she challenged? Of course. Is she overjoyed? You bet. Did you know in North Korea to be found even with a bit of a Bible, even with just a single book or tract, merits 15 years in a concentration camp from which many people never return. 50,000 Christians at least are rotting in these camps for no other reason than they wanted to hear from God. Beyond justice, beyond rules, beyond possessions, beyond the love of family, beyond even hope for life itself, their only security is the promises that God made in his word. And this faith and this obedience Uh, shames me and maybe challenges us all too. The second thing Josiah did was he got some help. Um, He he sent for the word of Huldah the prophetess. Now, um, the best help, of course, as Christians to us, is the Holy Spirit, the counselor, the advisor, the friend. And we should always pray before we read God's word, and we should always pray after it that we might understand it and put it into practice. Are all of us in a midweek group to share God's word together and learn from it? Do you have Bible notes? You can get them free online now, even though our bookshop is closed, to take a passage each day and study from it. And I'm always amazed when you pray and look at a passage in some detail with the help of the advice of others, whether in writing uh, or in the room with you, how much you learn and how much God's word comes to life to challenge us. And finally, the last thing that Josiah did, the last slide I have, is that he then, having learned what God wanted, he then did it. And Jesus tells in Matthew's gospel about the path to God's kingdom, to God's salvation being a narrow gate, but the road to lead, that leads to destruction is wide. And as Josiah found to go down that narrow road, there are both positive and negative aspects. Firstly, he eradicated the idols, the altars, the pagan practices, the depravity, the blood sacrifices. In Hebrews it says, let us throw off everything that hinders us, that holds us back, and the sin that so easily entangles us. What are we putting our hope in that is not from God? What would God's word challenge us that is hindering us in our Christian journey, that is holding us back, that is entangling us in sin? What in our lives is hurting ourselves and stopping us growing? What is hurting others in our lives? God's word will show us. But that's the negative side. He got rid of the negative. He accentuated the positive, as they say. He also celebrated for the first time in years and in a style that had not been done for centuries, the Passover. God's word showed him all that God had done for his people. He had saved them from Pharaoh and the, dead, and the Red Sea in Egypt. He had delivered them to their own land. In the same way, reading God's word reminds us of what he has done for me and what he has done for you. And when that little voice in your head, as mine often says is, you're not good enough, well, God's word reassures us that we don't need to be good enough, that Jesus is good enough, that Jesus has paid the price for us, that Jesus has led us through out of that captivity and that barrier into freedom and newness of life into which uh, we can know God's salvation. 
God's unfailing love, God's constant mercy, and God's promises, and our part in that plan. Those things were worth celebrating then, and they're worth celebrating today, and that's what we come to church to celebrate. As Paul told Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God, that's me and everyone here, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But if we never open our Bibles, if they lie in a corner, if little cobwebs are growing around them, then we will not be taught, rebuked, corrected, or trained, and we will not be as equipped to fulfill our part in God's wonderful plan that he's been expounding for centuries. So like Josiah, and like all of Judah, let's rededicate our covenant with God today and every day to stand on his word and not on all the other things in life that tempt us astray. Thank you.